Welcome to the Ember Podcast. We're so glad that you've joined us today as we gather together to wrestle with the ways that these ancient texts collide with our everyday lives as 21st century people. Using art, music, and the world around us as our guide, we hope to breathe new life into these texts and that our conversations spark as much curiosity and creativity for you as they do for us. Hi, I'm Jeremy Grafe, and I'm one of the leaders at Ember Faith Community. Hi, I'm Allison Spooner, and I'm the pastor at Faith Emmanuel and Hope Presbyterian Churches. Hi, I'm Kelsey Wallace, and I'm a PhD candidate at Drew University. For this season of the Ember Podcast, we're talking about the book of Revelation. Whether you're a Christian or not, we hope you'll join us in exploring how the apocalyptic poetry in the book of Revelation challenges power structures, helps us to look at the way we use power, and invites us to resist oppression. This is especially relevant for Christians who are called to witness to God's grace, but we hope the Ember Podcast can help spark meaningful conversations for people who have other beliefs as well. Thanks for tuning in. Revelation 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who so this week we're talking about Revelation chapter 1, and maybe up front it's probably helpful to talk a little bit about how Um, we can look at Revelation a little bit more helpfully. Uh, Often when we think about Revelation, our ideas are informed by really crappy sci-fi movies (laughs) that think of it as purely a prophecy. And some of us have theologies that are a little bit more conservative and maybe a little bit more literal-minded. But what if we take a look at Revelation as um, a kind of poetry What if we look at Revelation as expressing a kind of dream logic? Like when you're in a dream, everything makes sense. You know who everyone is, you know where you are, but it's not necessarily exactly like it is in reality. And there's a lot of images in Revelation that would be nearly impossible or completely impossible to show a visual representation of, but it it has a certain feeling ascribed to it. So the invitation is... Let's look at Revelation as a kind of apocalyptic poetry. Yeah, working off what you just said about how a lot of the visuals described are impossible to render visually, um, that's definitely true. But at the same time, uh, this is probably one of the most visual texts um, in the canon. There's so much um, that invites you into imagining um, in a visual way. I think it would actually, it would make a great graphic novel um, because of that. There's just so much cool and striking imagery that's used. But at the same time, it's interesting that when you see this in film, uh, you kind of get these very 
kind of classic tropes of particular things like later we're going to get to the four horsemen and we're going to get to the beast and some stuff later on that you see show up in pop culture all the time mm. um, and they tend to show up in particular ways and I do think it's interesting that when we get there holding what we know about these visual images next to what the text really says like something's always a little bit missing and a little bit off because it is so hard to capture this kind of dream world in something that's concrete and tangible and yet so much of the action would make a really great movie mm-hmm. yeah. yeah like Guillermo del Toro would be my choice <laughs> yeah, that, that would be awesome um, and later on we, 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 might, we might talk about some um, of the William Blake rendering, renderings of different chapters of Revelation and even that in that stuff it's really hard to tell kind of what's going on and there's a lot of color and there's a lot of movement and it's difficult to kind of capture any kind of time within that and so I think the dream logic thing to me is the most important frame that we have for for reading this because visions really don't make concrete sense in the world in the real world in the way that even a story being told um, like that's written down or even a film is really able to do yeah definitely well, do we want to jump into chapter one then specifically and talk a little bit about well, what's happening here? Yeah. Um, so as Ember, we meet in kind of like a live alternative worship um, every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. here in Lancaster. And um, our first week talking about Revelation, we were joined by Dr. Greg Carey, who is a distinguished professor of the New Testament at Lancaster Theological Seminary here. And he said a couple of things up front that were also helpful. Um, he is particularly drawn to apocalyptic literature within the Bible. And he's the one who shared that Revelation is a kind of poetry. He wanted us to make sure that we were honest about there are so many places within the text that we're going to resist. There's, there's a lot of images of exclusion and violence and some really deeply troubling images. But... One of the things that he kept coming back to is this idea is, what is Revelation saying about Jesus in particular? And in chapter 1, he pointed out that the letters were written to actual people who lived in actual places. And I think that has a lot of of currency, like imagining what it must have been like to be in the church of Laodicea and hearing one of these letters written to our congregation. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out that this doesn't exist in a vacuum. Like, it's speaking to actual events that really happened uh, at a point in history and and things that we can't necessarily totally understand because we're removed from that. Yeah, I think it's really important as we go forward, especially the deeper we get into Revelation, is to remember... Um, to kind of hold in tension what we know about the first century and and the way that we as readers bring our own context to the text and interpret in light of our own experiences what's happening in the world today. And I think that one of the pow- the most powerful part of scripture for me is that it kind of can do both of those things, that you can identify this very deep and um, meaning and context from the churches that might have heard it or the people in the first century and the way that they were living. And also, and yet here we see it speak to our own context in, a, in also really powerful ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess it's worth mentioning, since we're talking about that con- context, um, that the churches that this 
Revelation is written to are specifically these seven churches that are in Asia, um, which I, is modern-day Turkey for the most part, uh, kind of in that Mediterranean area. Um, so that just gives a little bit of context of where we are and when we are. Um, and some of these some of these churches are written to um, cities that either are still standing today or that you can visit and see the ruins um, of churches and buildings and the kind of track the city through the centuries. Like Ephesus is still a very important, huge place today. Um, likewise, some of the other places. But Ephesus is probably the one that comes to mind the most quickly. Um, we've heard about it a little bit, you know, in the news lately and stuff too around that area. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the way Christ is described in the first chapter because we have a lot of uh, different ways of talking about him. Uh, the firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. Um, I love that one. Uh, and then this description of him, uh, the son of man, clothed with a long robe and golden sash across his chest. And try for a minute to imagine the hair white as wool, white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of many waters. I mean, to me, that's a really good example of that kind of poetry that Revelation is kind of stylistically working in. It's also like this kind of terrifying image yeah. of Christ. Like, and the sword. Right. And a the sword, sword coming out of it, double-edged sword. Coming out of his mouth. It's like. so cool. Well, I mean... His first line is, do not be afraid. Yeah. So I, I think there's something to that. But even the description, one of the things that um, I hope we can stay noticing is this, things are like something. Like they're not actually the thing. So the experience that John is trying to write down in his testimony is he's trying to communicate with the limited vocabulary that he has like what he actually saw. Like yeah. it's showing the limitations of words to communicate the experience, which I think is is really powerful. And I think um, it's worth noting too in this first chapter, you get a couple calls to, to from Christ and in the very beginning, that blessed part, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. Um, likewise, later on you get the same thing out from the, mouth of Christ saying now write what you have seen what is and what will what is to take place um you're already getting this call to like kind of pay attention and to kind of hear and listen and to witness to what's going on Um, and I think that as we go forward in Revelation that call to witness is going to keep coming up over and over and over again so it's worth paying attention to that it's already here in the first chapter thinking about that very thing I mean Witnessing is kind of one of the primary things that shows up. But imagine being John. Like, we don't know anything about John other than he had the revelation on Patmos. So what must it have been like for him to have this vision? And now he's being told that he's got to go tell about it. And I think it's really, um, it's pretty remarkable that he's being told to say everything that he sees and everything that he hears and experiences because... I think I might be tempted in that moment to withhold details, you know, maybe say some of it, but not all of it, because there's a lot in Revelation that's hard to hear. 
especially if, if we're if we interpret the symbols a certain way i mean there are moments that i'd be nervous saying certain things in front of like an agent of the roman empire for example yeah i think it might be important too for man to stop and think about what life might have been like for john um living you know under the roman empire what that might have looked like for these christian early christian churches and these communities that you know this is not a period in time where christianity is the accepted religion of the day and under the roman empire there were religions that were kind of condoned that you could you know be a jew and you would have there were certain restrictions on you should you should you be a jew under roman occupation because um, the Roman Empire kind of was the religion of the day, like Caesar was, you know, not just an emperor, but God. And you, when you would give tribute to Caesar, you would um, praise and worship him like you would worship a god. Um, and then there's kind of each town has its own kind of, um, what do you call local them? Local deity. Yeah, local deity or the patron saint of that yeah. place kind of right. idea. Um, so to be a Christian and to not be kind of one of the, the accepted religions, a member of one of the accepted religions means that there's a level of fear operating for you and even practicing um, and congregating. Um, and as we'll get to later, the, the threat of persecution is pretty strong. So not only is John living in a society that doesn't really know what to do with Christians, that there's a very real physical threat to people's lives at this point. Um, and to him. I mean, to he's, him. he's yeah. on Patmos, he says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, uh, which it, to me implies that he's there as, you know, as a fugitive of some sort um, because of the persecution that he's he also mentions. So scholars now acknowledge that Christian persecutions weren't as widespread or systematic as we once thought. Instead, they're more localized and sporadic. That's not to say that we can't hear the anxiety and fear in this text, because the next two chapters are letters to the churches, and it's threaded through both of them. What makes these stories so relevant and resonant, though, is that martyrdom and persecution narratives are part of our inheritance as modern Christians, and there's no denying that they have shaped our collective imagination and memory. For believers today, I think sometimes your own faith can put you at odds with your family, it can put you at odds with civil and local governments because you're not maybe participating. Um, we're seeing a lot of that now with a lot of the um, kind of like anti-immigrant rhetoric. Yeah. And especially locally here in Lancaster, there have been a lot of people who have been protesting and showing solidarity for refugees and for immigrants. Yeah. So, I mean, there's I think there's something really compelling about this idea of um, testifying to what you've seen and heard because... On one hand, it's it's a faithful witness, but it's also potentially putting you at odds with your social network, with your family, and maybe even the government sometimes. Yeah. I imagine, you know, what it must be like for uh, a Muslim woman to walk around in a hijab with all of, you know, the talk that's been going on lately. Um, mm -hmm. There's a fear there, and... You know, it saddens me that that fear exists, but that kind of space is where is kind of the space that revelation comes out of. You know, a different religion, obviously, but the same sort of antagonism um, that goes along with that. And I think that also says something about the compulsion of this vision and, and kind of the his n not only need to 
not the not just the command to go and tell, but that he does it, I think says something about how powerful this experience was. Um, like I think about my own life, even when I feel convicted about something, sometimes it's still really hard to to say that publicly, like in in a space that's very very antagonistic in terms of politics, in terms of kind of interpersonal relationships even. So for the fact that he's in, we know that he's in this environment that is not necessarily safe for him, and yet he still goes out and writes this down and says what he says, I think speaks to kind of the conviction in this moment. It's also, you know, he's speaking this word into that type of tense, antagonistic atmosphere we've described. And it's a word of hope. Um, Despite, you know, we've already talked about there's some disturbing stuff that we're going to encounter. And even in this first chapter, um, we hear, you know, on on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. Um, All the tribes of the earth. That's scary. Um, And yet there is a lot of hope um, coming out of this on the one hand there is suffering there's the earth will wail but on the other hand there's Christ who is king over all the kings of the earth um, and there's Christ who um, is shining with full force in, in the midst of all this I, to me that is speaking into a we already know that the situation is bad the situation is tense and scary and yet Despite all that, we have this hope on the other hand. One of the things that Dr. Carey said when he joined us was that Jesus is walking in the midst of them and holding these people in his hand, mm-hmm. which is one of the things that I think is really beautiful about Revelation is even when it's kind of at its most terrifying, there are still these little moments of hey, God's still got this. Jesus is still with you. And this is going to turn out okay in the end. Like there are these little notes of hope. It's almost like um, the grandfather and the princess bride. Like, I see you're looking nervous. It turns out okay. Like yeah. it, it's it's that same kind of feeling. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, spoiler alert, when you get to chapter 21, that's kind of like that moment of newness and hope but there's a lot that we have to get through to be able to get to chapter 21 and 22. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we know that they're there. We know that at the end of this, Christ is making all things new and reconciling all things. And I think to me, the great hope of the first chapter is that we know that he's already in the midst of everything. Right. That throughout all of this chaos and all of these horrifying images that we're going to come across in the intervening chapters, that the fact that Christ is in the lampstands and holding the seven churches, the stars, the seven churches in his hand, that, that's hope from go. Like that's that if you're going to hold on to something, I mean, that's it. Yeah. At that image of the double edged sword coming out of his mouth. And to me, that's, I mean, that's the word um, of God, Christ as the word, but it's two edged. So it's hopeful, but it is also, you know, acknowledging that we're not going to get to that hope without a considerable amount of suffering. Um, I think that's that's a reality that we see no matter what we're talking about in the modern world. In order to get to a more healthy way of living, often we have to go through a considerable amount of discomfort and pain. Um, 
which is a hard truth to wrestle with, but um, it's one that Revelation does not back away from. Well, and the literal crux of Christianity is crucifixion and resurrection, and you can't have resurrection without dying. Yeah. And I think as we kind of move forward through Revelation, there's going to be this perpetual invitation into discomfort. And I think the three of us all kind of acknowledge and have realized in our own lives that sometimes the things you learn in discomfort, you can't learn in any other circumstances. And I want to be careful to say that we're not saying that that Christianity is about suffering, but if you're not suffering, you're not doing it right, because that's very—that's not what we're saying. That very good. But we're acknowledging <laughs> that there are times and spaces where the Word of God, the text, our, our, even our practice of religion in the world is uncomfortable, and I think that's part of it. As we work through this text, we want to make sure that we are also in conversation with you, our listeners. So we invite you to reach out to us with questions, comments, and we'll be addressing these as we go on in subsequent podcasts. You can send your questions to emberfaithcommunity at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you. The Ember Podcast is a production of Ember Faith Community. Your hosts are Jeremy Grafe, Allison Spooner, and Kelsey Wallace. Music written and performed by Subaltern Project. All rights reserved. 2017. Alright, I'm just recording. Alright then. You just uh, start whenever you want. Alright then. Alright then. Call you. That <laughs> yeah. is what you should not do. <laughs>